Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Brianne Fallon, and for a bit of a different spin this week, with me is Dan Gorman. How are you, Dan? I'm good. How are you? I'm great, and I'm very much looking forward to this episode that you recorded with Ronit Stahl on military chaplains. Can you tell us some of the key takeaways of that episode? Sure. Dr. Stahl and I will be discussing uh, her recent book, Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in Modern America. We discuss how the military chaplaincy is an inadvertent vehicle for pluralism and cultural change in the United States, how during the time of World War I, when there was intense xenophobia in the United States, you had the military chaplaincy formalized to allow Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish representation, but there was deep racism in the system as black clergymen were not allowed to minister to white soldiers. Um, There was also the lack of religious diversity reflected. For instance, Greek Orthodox and Mormon soldiers weren't sure which chaplains to go to. And then by the time of the Vietnam War, when many liberal clerics were debating whether to serve in the military at all, fundamentalist preachers took advantage of that gap to surge in and fill the chaplaincy as part of a larger mission to remake America's institutions in the face of conservative Christianity. I had not sort of thought about military chaplaincy from all of those different angles, so I'm really looking forward to your episode. So take it away. I'm speaking today with Dr. Ronit Y. Stahl, Assistant Professor of History at the University of California, Berkeley, and a faculty affiliate of the Religious Diversity Cluster of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. Dr. Stahl's research focuses on religious pluralism in American society by examining how politics, law, and religion interact in institutions. Her first book, Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in Modern America, was published by Harvard University Press in 2017. It demonstrates how, despite the constitutional separation of church and state, the federal government authorized and managed religion in the military. Dr. Stahl, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you for having me. In this Zoom remote environment, um, which we were doing before the pandemic, so our workflow hasn't been affected too much. We've all now become Zoom experts, I suppose. Exactly. Um, But, you know, there we, there is no paid advertising in this program. We are not, we don't get points for mentioning Zoom. So I wanted to start off by talking about um, a a little anecdote you share on page 338 of Enlisting Faith. It's in the acknowledgments. And you mention how your father, when he was training at Fort Jackson, um, on Saturdays, he would attend Shabbat morning service. And then on Sundays, he would go in take church call and sleep for a couple hours. And I thought that was a really interesting anecdote, um, even though it's not part of the main argument of your book, because it captures that sort of not always sincere use of religious opportunities in the military. Yes. So um, my father uh, was uh, an expert at systems in many ways. He really understood how institutions worked and he uh, he had a low draft number in Vietnam. And uh, part of his reckoning with institutions was understanding that um, if he enlisted in the National Guard, that that would uh, be a way of uh, 
performing military service, but not uh, being sent to Vietnam. And he actually uh, convinced a few of his uh, classmates to do the same thing. So he had his original initial basic training and service at Fort Jackson, and then he did weekend duty. Um, and he actually, you know, was, uh, you know, a committed Jew and did, you know, both uh, attend and lead uh, Shabbat services on Saturday mornings, but he also recognized an opportunity when it appeared in front of him. And so he, uh, yeah, he would take church call on Sundays and uh, get a little sleep in. And, you know, again, I think, um, it, you know, it does highlight the ways uh, in which this, the military is a system, it's an institution. It's actually um, in the context of the chaplaincy, uh, multiple institutions coming together, institutions of religion and institutions of the military. And uh, when these spaces come together, people can use them in all sorts of ways. And, um, you know, I think one question that always arises in the context of religion these days are questions of sincerity. Um, and part of what this highlights, I think, is the complexity of sincerity. Mm -hmm. um, he was uh, sincere exactly, in, exactly. His, in his Jewish faith. He, he really um, did... And, and continued to be an active and observant um, American Jew. But he also, again, was very content to get a little rest in on Sundays. So um, religion can be used for all sorts of purposes. And, and individuals can, you know, have that uh, complexity isn't just about institutions. Complexity exists on an individual level as well. And religion is one of those spaces where um, there are parts that can be appealing and genuine and show deep conviction. And at the same time, also, there are opportunities that one can take advantage of. And one of the things I appreciated the most about this book, the detailing the history of the military chaplaincy, is, is capturing that, I don't want to say, not polyvocal, because it's not a voice. I'm trying to find a word to describe. There's those. There's multiple categories at work here. There's the institution of the military. There's the actual, you know, the business of making war. And then there's also this molding of what we want officers and and enlisted men to be like, which is this, this very progressive era. We're going to shape these people into what we want them to be. Yeah, this is an institution and we can use it for a lot of different aims. And, you know, I think that's what makes institutions so fascinating to study and in such interesting spaces. I think often institutional histories are thought of as kind of boring, just the history of, you know, a particular organization or, you know, a particular institutional space. But I think when done well, institutions are some of the most fascinating places to see a multivalent uh, society and in the U.S. context, really the variety of experiences of American society located in one place. What happens when people converge, even if they share certain commitments? Um, and of course, at other times they don't share those commitments, but are still uh, uh, sent to the same place. But, you know, what happens when there are certain rules that govern how people um, ought to behave or ought to what they ought to be doing, but also um, these spaces are used for multiple purposes. And how do how do the individuals in them respond to these different kind of social cues, political cues? You know, what are they doing with the information they receive? What does the military want to do? Why does it want to do it? And what's actually the outcomes? And um, the outcomes are rarely uniform. And that's part of, again, what I think makes this 
um, so fascinating is that there are lots of tensions. There's opportunity for many people in the military at different moments, um, but there's also coercion. There's also repression. There's also real obstacles and real challenges. And we can see this on all sorts of axes. And um, the religious space in the military opens up a lot of these, whether we're also looking at race or gender um, or sexuality or questions of morality. Um, how do people navigate these tensions, um, both ideologically, but most importantly, um, in their everyday life? What happens when you just have to make decisions? And it's interesting you mentioned that this question of making decisions, because the military, when it created the, the modern formalized military chaplaincy around the time of World War I, defined it in very narrow ways. And I think you mentioned in the book, the, you know, the Will Herberg's book from the 1950s, Protestant Catholic Jew, saying that there are these three silos that Americans can fall into. Well, 30 years before that book was written, the military was saying, we're going to have Protestant, Jewish, and Catholic chaplains, and that's it. Yeah, and that gets at that kind of progressive era moment of World War I, where the military wants efficiency. So, okay, we're going to open up the chaplaincy. It's typically been Protestants and Catholics, and within Protestants, a, a few different, mostly mainline groups, and we're going to open this space um, to Jews. That, that really is, for the military, a different religious group. They recognize they can't quite smush it in with everyone else. But also there's a chaplains at large bill that opens the military chaplaincy to Mormons, to, um, to Christian scientists at the time, to the Salvation Army, at least in theory, to the uh, Eastern Orthodox, though they're not included until World War II. But the question the military faces and, and comes up against over and over again in the 20th century is, well, how do we organize these groups and where do they fit? And again, in this progressive mindset of, you know, efficiency, you don't want a proliferation of tons of different groups. Instead, you want like it's a very management perspective of organization. So, OK, well, you know, we'll, we know we've had different Protestants before. That's kind of a big category. We'll just add more to it. We recognize that Catholics are different. They're going to um, come from. Uh, and be endorsed by, because there's this process by which chaplains have to be endorsed by their religious group, we recognize that the Catholic Church is going to handle that differently than kind of these Protestant groups. And, and then we're going to have a, a group for Jews. But even there, we're also going to sort of impose a certain degree of efficiency, which is to say, while there, there are different uh, um, movements within the Jewish tradition in the United States, there is this thing called the Jewish Welfare Board, and it's going to be our interface. And it doesn't matter if Orthodox Jews and Reformed Jews view the world differently or might want different things out of their rabbis. They're just Jewish chaplains. So at multiple levels, there's this um, cr clustering. Um, and, and, and again, yeah, this idea of kind of a Protestant Catholic Jewish America that emerges um, publicly in force in the 50s with Herbert book is actually a really much older idea, as you said, and it, it starts in many ways um, in the military trying to organize religious categories and stuff people into these boxes. Um, and if you're, and basically, if you're not Jewish or Catholic, you're Protestant from the military's perspective. These are your options. I remember in the book, you talking at, you talk at length about the difficulty of classifying the Greek Orthodox Church, because technically, I mean, it's, it's Eastern Catholicism from one perspective, but it, but of course there was the schism, but they weren't Protestant either. And it's this, it's, it's, it's 
It's like the, the Apollo 13 problem of the square peg in the round hole, where it's like, it doesn't quite fit. And the typical wasp military man of 1920 doesn't know how to broaden his horizons. That's right. You know, there are a number of uh, incidences where things just don't quite fit. And that's where you see this friction. So you see it with the Eastern Orthodox who are like, you know, even when it's just, you know, soldiers, what box do I check, right? Like, do I say I'm Protestant or do I say I'm Catholic? Because none of these resonate with me. We see it with Latter-day Saints who really don't like being classified as Protestants, you know, and then we see it with groups like Buddhists who are like, we are definitely none of these. But in World War II, from the military's perspective, a Buddhist may as well be a Protestant. Like, it's not, um, it's not distinct. I, I will, I do want to um, complicate that by saying that the military did recognize in the case of burials that there would be different rituals for a group like Buddhists. Um, there was more um, uh, options when it came to things like burials, but in terms of living and uh, who your chaplain options were, you had Protestants, you had Catholics, and you had Jews. And again, in the World War II military, this becomes even more obvious, the problems of this categorization. And yet still the chiefs of chaplains are kind of throwing up their hands and are like, you know, if we allow every group to be recognized as their specific denomination or their specific group, we're going to have upwards of 250 or more religious groups. And how on earth are we going to manage that? It's a management problem from the military's perspective. Well, and there's, there is a fourth unspoken category, which is that in the military in, in this period until President Truman's 1948 order, it was Protestant, Catholic, Jew, African-American. And how they were African-American chaplains were shoved into their own category and not allowed to work with white troops. That's right. So um, the chaplaincy was actually the first space in the military to itself desegregate, which is to say chaplain training school, chaplain officer training school was desegregated before Truman desegregates the armed forces. And that I want to be clear was a very practical decision from the military's perspective. This was, you know, we, there aren't that many chaplains we have to train and also they're educated men, they're men of God, they can sort of handle uh, integration, but still African-American chaplains will only uh, minister to African-American troops. And so there is this, this uh, for the military, like they, they've created these three religious categories, but they're coming up against segregation. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean? Uh, what do you do with African-American chaplains who typically uh, were mostly Protestant, but there are a few Catholics and you know they're, they're the African American. There's no single African American tradition. The Black Church is not one thing; it's many things. Um, and so that really does come up against this. Ra- uh, there's sort of a religious architecture and a racial architecture, and they don't overlap uh, perfectly. And so, yeah, you get in if you look at forms, if you look at data, if you look at assignments. Um, from World War II, you get these four categories, not just three, and you get um, kind of in the imagination of what does a chaplain look like, this question of, you know, where where do African-American chaplains fit? And this is not just a question of religion, it really is a question in the military of also of authority, because uh, between World War One and World War Two, there are only five Black officers in the entire U.S. military in that I didn't time know that. <laughs> And three of them are chaplains. So the space of authority and of African-American leadership in the military 
you will get more African-American officers during World War II, but still in terms of a durable line, um, places where people understand the institution and know how to work within it, also know how to challenge it. Um, often that's coming out of these religious spaces. Um, but again, it's not, it, it's a messy, it's a messy situation. And that's why it does matter to be looking at this religious uh, space, but also being really keenly aware of the racial dynamics at work. Yeah. And it's interesting. We're having this conversation during the end of Black History Month, 2021. Um, thinking of this too, Henry Louis Gates's Black Church documentary just came out on PBS. Um, but on page 91, you talk about Chaplain Luther Fuller. Um, and th- this this anecdote really disturbed me, actually, that he gives a sermon in the South Pacific protesting racism in the military, and then word comes down that white officers are planning to murder him, and that he had to be protected by fellow black troops until he goes home, at which point he is dishonorably discharged from the military. I mean, really just a horrible story. I mean, also good, you could you could spin it in looking at the courage of the soldiers who protected him, but just such a damning indictment of American racism, both on the individual and institutional level. Absolutely. And I think, again, that's why it really matters to, you know, always when you're looking at sources and finding these stories in the archives to be paying attention to the multiple dynamics at work and recognizing when did religion protect and when, like in this case, it didn't protect him at all. And his, you know, what were deemed as kind of um, allegations by white superiors, they were real, they were accurate. They, you know, we now very clearly understand um, the the way the segregated military worked. And I think it's important to recognize it's not that people at the time didn't. They, they also knew how it worked. Like you wouldn't have Black troops protecting him if they didn't understand that this was a space where white supremacy had power. Um, it, it also doesn't mean there were, you know, there were other moments, other chaplains who, um, you know, used different tactics to try and circumvent some of that racism. But in the end, it was still a racist institution. It was a segregated institution. And so black chaplains, though officers, though well-educated, though, you know, part of this larger system, you know, in many ways um, had to depend on, you know, other people for their safety and security. And in the case of Fuller, it was his troops who did a lot to, you know, physically protect him. Um, In other cases, it was, you know, other allies who, you know, stood up for for black chaplains, but in some cases they were left on their own. And so it was a really difficult space to navigate and um, religion offered some um, support, but it it did not erase racism. And that was a a real uh, and tangible aspect of military service um, in that period. I remember you mentioned in the introduction, um, you know, the tensions of faith between faiths and the pluralist environment. It's between ethnic groups and racial groups too. Um, and also the the anecdote, the book opens with the story of poor private Leonard Shapiro, who dies in France, and his, his mother receives a letter that he has received a good Catholic burial, um, when, of course, the Shapiro family was Jewish. And to me, the most telling part of the whole saga was when his division chaplain said, well, I looked down a list of the dead, looked at their last names, and I saw the ones that ended with vowels, and I figured he was Italian. And that's what that told me was that At this point, you know, back on the home front, you still didn't have a lot of overlap between these ethnic groups, that it was possible that 
a an Italian or a Catholic chaplain might not know anyone who was Jewish and also might not know non-Italian or non-Irish Catholics, depending what neighborhood he was from. This is very segmented culture. That's right. And that is one way in which the military did create opportunities. Obviously, in the case of uh, Leonard Shapiro and his poor family, it was a vexing situation. But what it also highlights is the way in which the military was this space of encounter between religious and ethnic groups that people were not getting at home in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the interesting things that happened after the book was published was um, people kind of telling me about their childhoods, especially um, if they came from like Um, areas in Brooklyn or other uh, urban places where there were both large urban uh, Catholic and Jewish communities and what was happening in schools at the time and the kind of interesting alliances that would build up about presumptions of who was who and sort of mass, not necessarily, again, passing as a different religion, but if you wanted to be student council president, sometimes it was helpful to have a name that kind of, again, played those Um, tricks on people because of assumptions about what vowels at the end of a name meant. So that really affirmed for me that this was connected to larger currents in American culture and society in which there just had, there wasn't that much contact. And so the military is in that sense, very much an educational space, um, though it wasn't necessarily a space of deliberate education. It meant by World War II, people really were encountering very uh, different people, different circumstances. Um, someone like Chaplain Roland Gittleson, who becomes famous in part because of the um, anti-Semitism he experienced um, at Iwo Jima when he's supposed to give, um, he was asked by his superior to give um, a sermon at a, eul- a eulogy for fallen soldiers. And then there were other chaplains who didn't want a Jewish chaplain doing that work. But also he commented about his own experiences going into chaplain school that, you know, prior to entering the military, and he had also been a pacifist prior to World War II. But more uh, importantly for kind of thinking about uh, religious diversity and pluralism, prior to entering the military, he said, you know, 90% of his contact was with Jews, was with, you know, the majority of his contact with other clergy was with rabbis. These were pretty tight religious circles. So one thing you get out of this is also these new connections and these, you know, interfaith and interreligious encounters where people are you know, actually learning about other faith traditions, not as something kind of distant or in books, but as how people live their lives. Um, And we can also see that in terms of crossing racial lines, you get someone like Jacob Rothschild, who's a Jewish chaplain in World War II, who goes on to lead the temple or a form congregation in Atlanta and become that And he becomes very active in civil rights work in part, not exclusively, but in part because of some of the connections he built with black chaplains in World War II and his synagogue will be bombed because of his civil rights activism. But it gets at the ways in which, you know, World War II was such a transformative moment. not just for the nation in a broad, you know, sort of the U.S. and the world sense, but um, in the ways in which communities were built and the ways in which people encountered one another and learned about one another and built networks that uh, were maintained in different forms after military service. And, you know, we can really see in that sense, the military has this hub of transformations religiously, racially and otherwise after World War II. And the chapters on Korea and Vietnam speak to that further, how on the one hand, you have the military acting as this incubator of a pluralistic society, 
but it's still within the culture of we're going to go off and we're going to fight the communists and we're going to make the world safe for democracy. Or more specifically, what you talk about, this idea of moral monotheism, it's almost this Christian-infused civil religion that the military is pushing onto its trainees. Yeah, I mean, part of what happens in the you know post-World War II years is, you know, what is the role of the U.S. in the world? This is a really huge question. And the chaplaincy's answer to it, and this is coming um, both from religious leaders in the chaplaincy and from kind of ideas in the military writ large about what is its role, um, both as a, a martial force, a fighting force, but also as this moral force. And we see the moralism in um, the ways in which uh, the U.S. is set up as the good or saintly or um, divine presence in the world against the atheist communists. But we also see this at the level of what becomes these um, character education and morality lectures that are that become the province of chaplains in uh, these years. They had long been kind of tasked, especially around sex, uh, with grappling with uh morality, at least as the military saw it. But this expands in World War II. It becomes much more formal. There are these lecture series about duty, honor, country, and folding kind of these patriotic morality into how you build soldiers. It's a time where there are debates about universal military training and what does it mean to maintain a draft. Uh, But what is the military doing with these young men that are drafted? Well, it's conveying certain ideas about what it means to be a moral citizen. Um, And that, of course, is going to come to a head with Vietnam as people Mm -hmm. see an immoral war. And, um, you know, what do you do when, you know, the messaging on one side is about, you know, fighting um, this this war and the messaging is also saying you should be a moral citizen. And what happens when these conflict? Well, and because of that, you talk about liberal chaplains who, for many of them, did not want to go to the war. And so we're claiming status as conscientious objectors. You do get a few going to fight or well, not to fight, but saying that, OK, even if I oppose the war, these men need. You know, these these soldiers need counseling. Um, the other thing that struck me about this is that you have fundamentalist and conservative groups going oh, this is our opening now. We can turn this institution, if the liberals are leaving, we can use this um, to our advantage. And not to make them sound totally sinister. I don't, I don't want to sound, I don't want to engage in caricatures here. But what I found so interesting was that you're talking about 10 years before the formation of the moral majority or the real explosion of evangelicals into national politics, you have conservative evangelicals trying to change a government institution, in this case, the military chaplaincy. When the liberals left, there were more opportunities for evangelicals to join. Yes, I think much like the ways in which um, the military is where the ideas of kind of that tri-faith architecture, the Protestant Catholic Jew that emerges in World War I and then becomes really public in the 1950s, we get a similar kind of pattern with the role of evangelicals. Because They've had their, and I'm talking here about white evangelicals who have had their eye on the military for a while. In fact, you know, the National Association of Evangelicals is formed in 1942, and one of their first subcommittees is a committee on chaplaincy. They see the military as an important venue that they want to participate in. And part of what's happening prior to Vietnam is building the foundation for participation in this space, which in part means sending 
uh, clergy to the chaplaincy, encouraging them to be in this space. But what it also means is institutional development on the ground, because one of the challenges for white evangelicals at that time is that the military has these education requirements for chaplains, requiring bachelor's degrees and seminary ordination. And there are certain traditions um, in you know, white evangelical and white fundamentalist spaces where a calling was much more important than education. So evangelicals had a choice and you can see this in meeting minutes in the 1950s. And again, as a historian of institutions and bureaucracy, I actually love meeting minutes. I think they're fascinating <laughs> documents, which that's, I know maybe- That's where the good, no, no, I, I, I agree. I'm, I consider myself a bit of an archive rat when we can go to archives and- uh, <laughs> The meeting, you know, the meeting minutes, have, that's where the good stuff's buried. And I have so much gratitude for the people who were taking really good meeting minutes, because part of what you see is this debate over, do we challenge the military about these requirements or do we build the infrastructure to meet the requirements? And it's a really, you know, it's one of these decisions, it's one of these contingencies of history that could have gone a different way, but they decide we're going to build the infrastructure, right? Instead of Instead of being antagonistic toward the military's requirements, we're going to meet them on their own turf. And so, you know, then as things develop and in ways that no one could have, you know, obviously uh, completely foreseen, by the time you get to Vietnam, you've got the people. You've got people who you've got white evangelical and fundamentalist pastors who have the education and, and can meet their requirements. So as this opportunity arises, they're ready to meet it. And a different set of decisions, you know, could have led in different directions, which I think is also what makes this history so interesting. But it is this parallel kind of pattern of there's a lot happening if you look carefully at the military space for much earlier than you see the evangelical emergence in kind of national electoral politics, which is where much of the attention has been focused the groundwork is being built much earlier. And so part of our job is to, you know, see where the groundwork is, identify, um, you know, what are the ways in which, you know, capacity is built to enter these spaces. And, you know, I, I just also, you know, I, I also want to say, I know this is a, um, there's a month of podcasts on narrative. And I want to say, you know, figuring out the Vietnam chapter was actually one of those chapters that was that was tricky to figure out in part because it's one of the places where um, the archives and sources changed my mind, which is to say, when I when I started this project, I thought things would fall pretty clearly map pretty clearly onto what we saw in society writ large, liberals are anti-war, liberal religion is anti-war at this moment, conservatives and conservative religion tends to be pro-Vietnam. So one thing that really surprised me, because some of that is true, but the thing that surprised me most was the real deep moral reckoning that a lot of clergy had with their with the role of the chaplain and really um, in, in this space in which these anti-war clergy still felt a deep responsibility, commitment, obligation to serving soldiers, and then trying to really walk a narrow line between being employed by an institution engaged in a war that they thought was immoral, but still being dedicated to supporting soldiers. And that was something that like took me a long time to work out, to kind of wrestle with the sources and sort of figure out what was happening mm -hmm. um, and to understand that moment as far more complicated than I had initially anticipated it being. And it becomes a, a microcosm of, you know, the larger, the, 
the complexities of American history in that era, on the one hand, growing more diverse, and then also backlash to it. But then it's tempered, right? Because if, you know, if you, even if you are a socially, religiously conservative person and you want to shape the culture in conservative ways, you still have to deal with all these other people who you may not deal with back in your own little community. Exactly. And that's part of, again, what I think makes the military so interesting and also why it makes the era after the draft ends so different. Because, you know, it's not that the draft was perfect at pulling from all parts of American life. It was always the case that some people were better able to get out of military service. But there is a real shift in just in terms of who's serving in the military and who takes over kind of military spaces. And the shift works in both directions. It's not like a single line um, because you get, on the one hand, you get many fewer uh, kind of um, elite or wealthy white people or even middle-class whites serving in the armed forces. You get, you know, a real, the military has to figure out how do we have enough personnel after the end of the draft? And, you know, they really start to focus on, um, often low-income and immigrant communities and kind of dangle the possibilities of what people can get, get out of military service. Um, and sometimes those opportunities are real and sometimes there is a, a false promise. Um, and so you get a real dichotomy of who's then serving in the military when it's not, when it's, it's optional, it's a choice to enlist. Um, and you also get, you know, we, we also see patterns of, um, you know, white nationalism in the military, but I think it's always important to, you know, we, this, there's a really broad spectrum and the end of the draft segments the military in different ways and creates again, then these new puzzles mm -hmm. around religion, because again, it's a really, it's an opportune space for, um, for people, especially to kind of, it's always been a space where you can kind of become American by being uh, in, in this space. Now, of course, whether that promise is fulfilled um, in civilian spaces is a different question, right. but you do get more, you get racial diversity, you know, as an institution, the military is one of the most racially diverse spaces in the United States. You get, um, as you get more women in the military, you know, you get, so, so it's a space where there are opportunities for women. It's also a space as we, as we know of immense um, sexual harassment and all sorts of problems tied to gender and sexuality. So all, as you're saying, like all of these issues that we can see in American society writ large that are, you know, all of these conflicts and tensions and friction, we see them in the military. The timing is sometimes different. The mechanism of handling things is sometimes different, which can mean both more and less successful. Um, but you get more religious diversity um, and also more kind of white evangelicals and fundamentalists. So again, you're getting these two different patterns in the military and it's a real challenge to tackle when you actually have to tackle it. You can't just acknowledge that it exists and, and let it be because it will come into conflict. I wanted to, as we move towards the end of this segment, to ask a slightly different question. This is a book that tells a roughly narrative history. It goes from World War One to the present day, but it doesn't have a single protagonist in the way that uh, you know a biography would. So could you speak a little bit about how you structure an institutional history that doesn't have one protagonist or, you know, which archive collections offered you a path into this material? Figuring out how to tell this story was one of the 
uh, biggest intellectual puzzles of putting uh, the book together. And also, you know, one of the ways in which, at least in hindsight, I can say one of the kind of really fun parts of it. I'm not totally sure I thought it was so fun when I was working on it, but in retrospect, I think of it as kind of a fun exercise. Um, and part of it was, you know, moving from drafts, trying to figure out like how I, I knew it would be chronological, but I still had to figure out kind of periodization, both of chapters, of chunks. Did I want sections? And again, yeah, how do you get narrative momentum and a real narrative arc? And I and I want to say I'm, I'm grateful. I worked with um, Joyce Seltzer at Harvard University Press, who really pushed me on what's the narrative arc here? How, and how do you take readers through this space? And so um, one of the things I did was at the time I, I, in my office, I had this whiteboard and every week I kind of challenged myself for a, a couple months that every week I would like write up a new kind of possible chapter organization. Sometimes there were sections and sometimes there were parts of the book and just kind of really play with it. Um, so the ultimate product is the result of that um, playing around with what the options were. So I, I knew it was always going to be chronological, but yeah, the question there isn't, it couldn't be tied to one individual. It was in part because it, it is focused on an institution, but also because um, the chronology was just too long for one person to be, to be central. But I wanted to make sure that every chapter had, um, you know, had, had um, some degree of either, uh, just a degree, someone, energy had to come from somewhere. So right. energy, right. And it had to, um, and so that could be from a puzzle or attention. Um, it could be because there are at various points, certain people who are really central to the organization and also through whom a lot of stories could be told. You know, one of um, the big challenges in book writing, at least for me, um, was actually in winnowing and cutting back and sculpting in many ways, the narrative. So the original draft of the book was actually a lot longer, if you can believe it. And a lot of it was about paring down and paring back. And what are the ways to really hone in? Um, what are the best examples to use that are um, illustrative, but also have momentum in terms of moving things forward? And so someone like um, the chief of chaplains, William Arnold, plays a really important role over a couple of chapters, in part because he was so important to the World War II chaplaincy. And other chiefs of chaplains kind of come in and out, but don't have quite the same anchoring role just um, because of where the story was going or where, you know, where it seemed I needed to focus attention. Um, but it was a series of, of choices and but also choices that came after a lot of kind of deliberation and playing with things and sometimes just making the decision to, you know, cut people out or cut events out, even if I wanted them there because um, they just didn't quite they fit or they kind of created a, you know, a kind of going off on a tangent that just didn't quite work. So, you know, I really did in the end keep the institution at the center. And I, you know, I, sometimes you tell institutional stories through the through um, single individuals. But in this case, you know, much like the institution itself, it really had to be an ensemble cast. And um, but but part of then the work of the author when you're you, you've got an ensemble cast and in an institutional history is is connecting people, drawing contrasts, using individuals to illuminate um, larger ideas. And um, 
it's always, you, you never quite know how it's going to land until other people start reading it. So, you know, in many ways, it then is about how the success of it, there's, there's what the author does, but ultimately some of that comes in the hands of the readers. And to, to finish off, I wanted to, so the re, one reason I responded so much to that anecdote about your dad, and I wasn't, I didn't mean to suggest, suggest he was insincere about Shabbat. It was, I love the detail about him napping was because my dad used to do that in the Marine Corps. And when my father was in the Marine Corps at officer candidate school in the 1980s, um, he has told me repeatedly how on Sundays he would go to the Latter-day Saint services, which at, at that time were three hours long um, because the room was air conditioned and the Latter-day Saints let the Marines sleep in the pews. So even though my father was Catholic, every you know many weeks he would go to Mormon services. And the other detail that resonated with me was that um, where he was stationed, they had a Greek Orthodox chaplain. And so again, this speaks to the changes that you described that by the 1980s, the chaplaincy was becoming a more diverse institution, even as America continues to suffer these growing pangs or whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, the tensions of being both pluralistic and a regressive society. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of, um, you know, that, that kind of, um, winking ecumenism is one of the things I really, I do find like delightful in its own way. And, you know, I think sometimes we want everyone to be acting always with the best of intentions, but I mean, think about, you know, not to speak for your father, but for anyone who just decides like, great, some other service gives me a little bit of time to sleep, but also it means you have contact with a group of people that you might not otherwise. And, you know, maybe friendships and other, you know, other um, connections build out of those spaces. And so I think we also have to allow that space for kind of these incidental decisions that maybe, um, you know, are driven by other, other reasons also are opportunities and they also create um, they also, they, they help create and build these institutions and, you know, people, chaplains will sometimes tell me, you know, oh, and like, I know, I knew someone was coming just for like the snacks, right? Food is also a lure. Uh, I mean, we see this, not just, you don't need religion to see that. And in days when we're not zooming, you know, there are plenty of people, myself included, that have shown up to talks because there was lunch, right? I mean, it's okay. You don't really, you get lunch and you learn. Um, yes. And so, you know, I think it's okay that people come into these spaces for all sorts of different reasons. It also produces these encounters. And for me, one of the most um, meaningful and satisfying parts of having this book in the world is when people, you know, then share their stories and their anecdotes as, you know, connected to things they read in the book. And, um, it's been really fun to hear all the different ways people connect and what are the connections they make based on their own experiences or their family members' experiences, the tales they heard from grandparents or, you know, whomever. And um, that that's great. I mean, I, I want to write books that, that, you know, people can relate to. So I think that's awesome. Ronit Stahl, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. It's delightful to talk to you. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Religious Studies Project with Ronit Stahl and Dan Gorman. To make sure we stay on the air and free, head to our website and click on the donate tab to donate to us via Patreon. And as always, make sure you follow us on our social media, whether that's Facebook or Twitter. All that's left to say is thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR 
and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne, and our opportunities digest by Ella Buck. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. Thanks for listening. <laughs>